it's a very visual and stunning migration. And there are several locations along the way that, you know, a homeowner might see their tree in their front yard covered with dozens or hundreds of monarchs. Um, so it, it's interactive and visual uh, on that migration south, but it's really one of the most amazing natural phenomenons of any organism on the planet, particularly for an insect where some individuals can travel in excess of 3000 miles. And that's pretty amazing wow. for an organism that has a wingspan of about five inches. Welcome to VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University focused on the impacts of climate change on animal health. Hi there, I'm JC Serta, and along with my classmate Claire Kazin, we are second year veterinary students at Colorado State University interested in the health of animals in changing landscapes and under a dynamic climate. Today, we are talking about monarch butterfly populations across the United States. Claire and I became interested in the plight of the monarch because we read the alarming headline that monarch populations have declined sharply across the United States due to a variety of factors, including habitat loss, pesticide use, and climate change. For example, the Western monarch population, west of the Rocky Mountains, has declined over 99% since the 1980s, and many scientists fear that the Western population may be close to extinction. To better understand what is happening with monarch decline, we are speaking with three experts in the field. We start with Dr. Jarrett Daniels, a monarch researcher from the University of Florida, who will tell us about the migration patterns and threats facing monarch populations. We will next speak with Carol C. Mueller, a local Colorado community scientist, who will tell us about her experience raising monarchs. And Katie Lynn Bunny, the education coordinator for the Monarch Joint Venture, will let us know what we can do to help monarch butterfly populations. Let's start with Dr. Daniels. So I'm an insect conservation biologist, so my lab predominantly works on insect conservation and recovery, and also sort of general ecology. So we do a lot with pollination, ecology, and biology. We specifically focus on really kind of two main groups, native insect pollinators and at-risk lepidoptera, particularly butterflies. So a lot of our work is dealing with um, critically endangered, threatened, and declining butterfly species, predominantly in Florida and California. So for kind of our listeners that don't know a lot about monarchs, can you tell us a little bit about the different populations in the U.S.? Sure. So broadly speaking, there is a Western population to the west of the Rocky Mountains. Those individuals will migrate and overwinter predominantly along coastal California. And then there's a much larger Eastern population, which is probably the most well-known because those individuals collectively migrate to uh, the mountains of Mexico around Michoacan. And that's where essentially all the Eastern monarchs go to overwinter. So that's essentially where hundreds of millions or even up to a billion monarchs can be found in only a few square miles. What does the migration look like? Can you kind of walk us through how the migration occurs from or to Mexico? Yeah, so the, the, if you start at the early spring when monarchs are leaving the overwintering colonies in Mexico, 
it's it's a a stepwise migration back north to colonize the eastern portions of North America. So the female butterflies will will mate within the colony in Mexico and they'll fly northward to south or central Texas where they'll lay their eggs and then those offspring will move a little bit further north into the Great Plains and then those offspring from those individuals will move further north to recolonize the Great Lakes. And the reason that, that is, is they're following spring latitudinally northward. If you left Mexico in February and went to Minneapolis, St. Paul, you're not going to encounter a really good productive area to breed. So they're, they're following spring latitudinally northward as milkweeds become available. And then over the course of summer, they'll build up their numbers and then they'll get cues from the environment, essentially decreasing day length and decreasing temperatures. And that causes a physiological change in the monarch that shunts their resources away from egg production to the development of fat body content to ultimately enable them to migrate southward. And then it's a long one-way migration down to the mountains of Mexico from where they originated several generations ago. And that will take them, you know, many weeks to make that long migratory journey southward. So it, it's a very visual and stunning migration. And there are several locations along the way that, you know, a homeowner might see their tree in their front yard covered with dozens or hundreds of monarchs. Um, so it, it's interactive and visual uh, on that migration south, but it's really one of the most amazing natural phenomenons of any organism on the planet, particularly for an insect where some individuals can travel in excess of 3000 miles. And that's pretty amazing wow. for an organism that has a wingspan of about five inches, let alone you think about a bird migrating down to you know, Central or South America, but this is a small insect. Based on annual counts of overwintering colonies in Central Mexico, Eastern monarch populations have declined by 84% from 1996 to 2015. Western monarch populations, which overwinter on the southern coast of California, have declined by 97% since the 1980s. In the winter of 2020, the overwintering population of Western monarchs in California dropped to fewer than 2,000 monarchs. Dr. Daniels is going to walk us through what factors may be contributing to this drop. So the, the dominant drivers out there have declined for both the monarch and, and many other insects and, of course, other organisms are, you know, habitat loss and fragmentation. That's the major driver for loss of biodiversity. But in addition, you have, um, you know, impacts from climate change, of course. You have impacts from overuse of agricultural uh, pesticides and chemicals. Uh, the um, you know, just a variety of different sort of things coming together, but habitat loss and fragmentation being really the predominant source of biodiversity loss, both, you know, in the U.S. and globally. What role does climate change play in all of this? Well, I think climate change is the big future driver of decline and unknown because it this is a butterfly that overwinters in Mexico at kind of high altitude fur forests. And they pick those locations because it's just the right um, ecotone where they don't really get freezing temperatures, but it's cool enough uh, that they can survive and not extend a lot of resources. So with climate change, that's going to make them move higher up the mountains to a point where they can't go higher. So how that is ultimately going to affect the monarch is probably not going to be in any positive way. Uh, so that's a, a big worry 
And then, you know, of course, within the continental U.S., we're already seeing temperatures rising and, you know, across the deep south. And that's, it, that is one of the reasons uh, why we're starting to see monarchs continuously breed during the winter months along the deep south from, you know, South Carolina over to central Texas. And, and of course, on the west coast, too, that's going to change where they potentially overwinter. Maybe they move from coastal areas to more uh, higher altitude areas within the Sierras. And all this is going to affect the dynamics of this migration. You know, it, it certainly won't take out the monarch as an organism, but there's so much focus on the migratory portion of the life cycle where it's really going to have an impact. We're here with Carol C. Mueller, who volunteers as a tour guide at the local butterfly pavilion here in Fort Collins, Colorado, and raises monarch butterflies. An animal? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I was delighted that you think of insects as animals because most people do not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's involved with, with raising and, and tagging? I mean, how do you tag a butterfly? Right. <laughs> I know it carefully. Um, <laughs> so the butterfly larvae come to us when they are two to three days old. They're so tiny, you can barely see them. Oh, wow. And they come in a little cup that has blended milkweed in it. So they're already feeding on this pulverized milkweed. And then I, and usually another neighbor now, our (laughs) friend Donna, will take a tiny paintbrush and transfer them to actual milkweed leaves. So to do the project, you have to have a source of milkweed. And one of the things I've noticed in Fort Collins in the last 20 years is milkweed has really spread. Interesting. I used to have to ride my bike all over the place to gather milkweed to do this project in the classroom. Now, it's all along Spring Creek Trail. We have several neighbors that have it growing. So it makes it really a nice situation for now doing the project with neighbors. But anyway, you take them on, put them on those leaves, and they just start eating. And (laughs) (laughs) you just wait until they need fresh leaves in the beginning. Since they're tiny, it might take a couple days before you say, yeah, let's get some better stuff in there. And then, I mean, they are increasing their body mass. I think it's 300 fold in 10 days. Wow. wow. It's a huge amount. So you have to keep putting more milkweed in at shorter intervals because, frankly, they are eating and pooping up a storm. Their metabolism is just churning. Wow. And um, it's, it's just fascinating to watch how quickly they go through this change from this three-day-old larva to within 10 to 12 days, this big, you know, lunking caterpillar that's colorful and moving so rapidly and eating all the time. Um, to have that happen in 12 days. I mean, I, I used to tell kids, it's like if you were born at six pounds in 10 to 12 days, that's like you being 180 pounds. (laughs) Wouldn't wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, metabolically, how does that even happen that a caterpillar can do that? It's just amazing to me. Um, So then um, they will get to the point where, again, some signal tells them to make a chrysalis. um, And it's a beautiful green chrysalis with these tiny jewel-like gold dots on it wow. it's just spectacularly beautiful and at that point they're done feeding so you clean out the container they're just suspended from the top 
And after another 10 to 12 days, you notice that the chrysalis is becoming transparent mm -hmm. and you can actually see the black and orange of the butterfly wings at that point mm -hmm. in time. They'll come out of the chrysalis over a period of a few hours. Their wings are all crunched up. And so you have to wait till they've pumped them out to those beautiful spread wings they'll have as a fully mature adult. And shortly after that, if it's a nice day, like today would be a beautiful day to release a monarch butterfly. You just go in and you grab them carefully by their front wings. And, and I have shown everyone how to do this who's done it in the neighborhood. And now they're like, yeah, we got this. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are tiny tags. Um, they're about the size of the top of a pencil eraser. And on it, they have information. They have a specific identifying number for that butterfly and information that says, you know, if you find this, please contact, I think it says Monarch Watch or University of Kansas, I'd have to get you a tag, but specific information so that if that butterfly is found somewhere along the way, it could be reported. Mm -hmm. And you just uh, take that carefully with your fingers. And there's a particular it's called a discal cell. It's extra wide space on the hind wing of the butterfly. And that's where that gets attached. Mm -hmm. It's just a little adhesive. Wow. And just like that from both sides. Um, and it's ready to go. Wow. So people often just put them on. I said, put them on one of your flowers. Just let them be feeding. Because monarch, monarch butterflies are pretty much generalists as far as their food source, as far as, you know, the adult butterfly, they can get nectar out of lots of flowers. The larvae, you must have milkweed. That is the only oh, thing they'll survive okay. on, which is why milkweed is so critical mm -hmm. to participating in the project. Right. Um, so yeah, and then you just cross your fingers and hope at this time of year, they're going south to Mexico. The ones again, east of the Rocky Mountains will all be heading to Mexico. Um, and you hope that some of them make it. Obviously, there's lots of things that can get in the way. Uh, I mean, I think they estimate coming down from Canada every year, there might be 200 to 300 million butterflies. Oh, wow. And, you know, in a really bad year, only like 2% might make that. Um, all the way to Mexico? All the way to Mexico. Wow. Yeah. This near extinction of monarch butterflies is only one part of a worldwide trend of pollinator decline, which has huge implications for plant diversity, ecosystem stability, and human and animal welfare. It's difficult to feel optimistic in the face of climate change, biodiversity decline, and mass extinction, but there are a few things that you can do to help in your own backyard. Now we'll hear from Katie Lynn Bunny of the Monarch Joint Venture for advice on how we can help the monarchs in our own community and across the country. So the thing that I tell anybody that wants to help with monarch conservation is the biggest impact that anybody can have for monarch butterflies, whether they're eastern monarchs, western monarchs, or anything in between, is to plant habitat. That's the number one thing that you can do to help pollinators, specifically monarch butterflies. And that habitat can include, it should include milkweed, because milkweed is the monarch's only host plant, but it should also include nectar sources, because the adults have to eat too, and the adults can only use milkweed as a nectar source when it's blooming. So native milkweed, native nectar sources and having a continuous bloom throughout the entire growing season is extremely important when you're planning a pollinator habitat. 
Um, if you only plant something that blooms in one month of the summer, say July, you're excluding pollinators from that habitat for the rest of the season. So if you live in an area that has a year-round growing season, you've got a lot of opportunity to provide a lot of diversity of the types of plants that you, you have in your area. And MJV and many of our partners have resources on our websites that you can find, you know, plant lists and things like that for what's appropriate to your area. So the Xerces Society and Pollinator Partnership have regional plant guides that you can use. And then the other one that I highly recommend, the National Wildlife Federation has a plant finder, a native plant finder that you just put in your zip code and it will give you a list of prioritized plants for pollinators based on how good that plant is as a host plant. If planting habitat isn't an option for you, if you don't have a garden or a patio where you can put things in a pot, um, you can also participate in Monarch Community Science Programs. And the Monarch Joint Venture has a bunch of resources on that. And the reason we really tout community science as a way to help monarch butterflies is because monarchs are such a broadly distributed organism. There's no way for any one scientist or team of scientists to be everywhere where monarchs are at any given point in time. That would be impossible, even with a crazy amount of funding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, obviously, it has its limitations, but um, we would not know what we know about monarch butterflies without the help of community scientists, volunteers. If that's not something that is of interest to you or something that you're physically capable of doing, you could also look into um, doing some sort of education, advocacy, sharing of knowledge in some capacity for monarch butterflies. Um, and again, that can take a lot of a lot of different forms. Um, you know, what I do versus what somebody else does would look very different. And I can't emphasize enough the, the importance of talking to your elected officials, whether that's local, state, county, federal, you name it. Um, your voice can have big impact for pollinators in that way as well. And then finally, if none of those are options or if you're just looking to do more, you can always donate to a conservation organization like the Monarch Joint Venture. And doing that, even if it's just a dollar or a recurring donation of $5 a month or something like that, doing something like that um, allows the Monarch Joint Venture to amplify those dollars and put them where they're needed the most. In the summary, <laughs> you know, plant habitat, participate in a community science program, get out there and share what you know, whether that's to your neighbors, friends, family, or your elected officials, and then donate are the four big things that we can do to help pollinators. In addition to all of the other things that are good for the environment, like, you know, curbing the effects of climate change and all that kind of stuff. For more information on what you can do to help monarchs, please see our show notes where we included resources from our speakers and other organizations. Thanks for joining us on VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University. To find more resources about this topic and details about each episode, check out the show notes. Thanks and see you next time on VetCast.